Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 84 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle. I'm here in Vomitorium East with my good friend and co-host, Dr. David Noe. How are you feeling today, Dave? I'm doing pretty well, Jeff. Thanks. It's uh, it's late May here in Michigan. We finally got past the smarch. Yes, finally. And, and the uh, ape thrill weather. And now we're into May. And uh, this these are some of the most beautiful times in Michigan. I, I agree. And I, I like the view we have here at the Vomitorium yes. East. We, uh, out on the lake here, we can see, see the swans. We can hear the birds. It's great. It's gorgeous. We have, you know, um, bright sunny days, blue skies, low humidity. It's perfect, really. It's, it's almost a shame to be inside doing a podcast. You think so? Well, not with the, not with the topic we got today. No. We have Virgil, don't we? We have Virgil. It's and how are you? It's always worth doing Virgil. Yes. yes. And how are you feeling, Jeff? I'm feeling great. I'm more of a morning guy than you are here. Yes. We're recording. A, it's a it's a it's a morning session today. Correct. Right. And you're more kind of a late night guy. I am kind of the night owl. Yeah. I, I get a second wind, you know, in the early evening, and then I like to work pretty late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you always been like that? Is it? I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I became kind of a a morning guy, kind of late in life, and now I you know I I have trouble staying up past ten o'clock. So. Oh my goodness. So yeah. So um. So you turn the last page of your AARP magazine and then turn. <laughs> Exactly. Musing on the senior discount I received that day. That's right. Yes. <laughs> exactly. You say it's it's been six hours since supper. Exactly right. Exactly right. right. Yep. So we're talking Virgil today. I'm very excited. We're talking. We're, this is our second uh, full length episode on Virgil. We're going to tackle the uh, the second half of book one. Correct. Uh, so much here to talk about. Uh, such a rich epic, and it's been a while since I've read it through myself. And uh, just reading through book one again last night, I was I was struck by many things that reminded me why I love Virgil. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we don't have a shout out today. We though. do not. No. no. And uh, that's too bad. I guess the people out there who listen to our musings and ravings, they don't really want to be recognized for the great sacrifice they're making. That's right. Exactly. So let's continue to shame them. I guess. And and, uh, and uh, into getting in touch with us. Right. And what I found in life is what really motivates people is shame. Shame. You know, that. <laughs> crushing feeling of inadequacy. Exactly that right. It really motivates them. That's right. I, it works with my children. Yes. All the time, right? So we're going to have to jump right to the Ope quote, I'm afraid. Okay, Jeff, this week's opening quote is from a book called The Idea of Epic. Okay. This is written by a man named J.B. Hainsworth. It's uh, published by the University of California Press, October 1989. All right. Now, this is a work that we have quoted a few times when we were going through the Iliad and Odyssey, when we were trying to give a little bit of the background for the concept of epic writ large. Mm -hmm. But now we're going to get specific on the topic of Virgil. So this is page 79. And he says, The national epic would depict the eclipse of such vices, these Greek vices, by solid Roman virtues. Even as Virgil marshaled his thoughts, the historian Livy was rewriting the history of Rome as a series of tableaux exemplifying the qualities that had made the city great. First, there was pietas, piety, that respect for religion and the actions and attitudes prescribed by religion that constituted the Pax Deorum. Pietas was closely connected to fides, good faith, the respect for obligations solemnly entered into that stood in such sharp contrast to the duplicity 
that seemed to characterize Rome's enemies, whether Carthaginian or Greek. Hmm. Then there was respect for authority, disciplina, and its concomitant concord. And among the private virtues were frugality, foresight, and reason, together with chastity and steadfastness. In short, Romans took a very serious view of life, gravitas. They would have been shocked if an impertinent Greek had said that this view was not only self-delusion, but insofar as it was true, described a ruthless, self-centered, and Philistine people. Did Virgil, a most retiring and literary person, believe this picture of the Romans? Very interesting. You know, that, that strikes me as I was rereading book one. Um, I noticed a number of things where, um, of course, clearly uh, Virgil is is tagging the, um, the Odyssey in many places, but... Uh, the difference between Aeneas and Odysseus mm-hmm. and the way that he approaches things, thinks about things, reacts to things is so strikingly different that um, I, I think that uh, the, the picture of Aeneas here uh, completely resonates with, um, with yes. the quote you just read. Yes. And he embodies these things. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And I take away from it uh, really the setup of an important question. To what extent does Virgil, thoroughly Hellenized, uh, mm. thoroughly of one mind with Homer, to, to what extent does he like dealing with this material and, and forcing a very different kind of people and a very different kind of history into a Homeric mold? Hmm. So you think that Virgil was, you see some discomfort there? or well, well, he's doing something that's not really true to his material in some ways. Yeah. He is recasting the history of Rome, this people characterized by the traits that Hainsworth described, gravitas and so forth, mm-hmm. a people that's not very literary or artistic. Yeah. He's recasting their history as yeah. a Homeric kind of event, complete with in uh, you know book 4 and book 2 things like um references, very uh, layered references to Greek tragedy. These kinds of things were appreciated by upper class Romans at the end of the Republic, but they weren't really Roman in any strict sense. Right, right. No, that's a, that's that's a really that's a really interesting observation. Um I also noticed that, uh, you know, the many ways in which Aeneas is different than Odysseus, um, it, it takes me back to reading this in, in graduate school, teaching it, and often um, students' complaints about Aeneas is that he's, compared to Odysseus, he's boring, right? Right. He's kind of more removed, he's more aloof, um, he's not, he doesn't, he doesn't um, use that matus, he doesn't have that cleverness. Mm-hmm. Um, but that gets, you know, in the quote that you just read, um, this idea that, you know, Romans had no taste for duplicity. Um, and so, or that, that Greek idea of du- duplicity and uh, looking at trickery as kind of a, a moral action or an immoral action. Right. The fact that Aeneas is not crafty like Odysseus is very Roman. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just one of the, 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 one of the many things I noticed just in this, in this first book where Aeneas seems to, um, he's following the path of Odysseus in many ways, but he's a very different He's a very different kind of, of player in this game. Right. And the quote also mentioned the notorious... Um, deception and, and practice of deception of Rome's two main opponents, the Carthaginians mm-hmm. and the Greeks. And so this theme of Punica Fides, right, a kind of Carthaginian or Punic um, faith or trustworthiness mm-hmm. is always said ironically. Right. You can't trust the Carthaginians. They have that notorious Punica Fides, right? Yeah. They're, they're just totally unreliable. And this is really the theme of the first three to four books. It, it occupies all of his interaction with Dido. And we're going to be introduced to Dido here at the end of book one. Right. Uh, yeah, uh, Punica Fides, uh, uh, acknowledging all of that, I think it makes it even more striking how sympathetic 
Virgil makes the Carthaginians, yes. or these early Carthaginians. They, they, I mean, they are not um, you know mustache twirling villains from the get go. They're actually they're um, they're they're victims, kind of of yes. of, of uh, the, the fate that hangs over Aeneas, right? That's correct. And of Juno's wrath, they are sympathetic, winsome individuals that you want to like. Yeah, and and it, that makes me wonder how that would have. You know, played to a general Roman audience, which you know in the first century BC certainly had kind of been brought up on the you know the, the stories of Rome of the of the recent centuries of you know Carthage as the ultimate right the ultimate villain right the wolf mm. that's that's at, that's at the door Hannibal mm-hmm. you know Carthago de Linda est it must be destroyed right right and so how this kind of sympathetic portrayal of the origins of of, of Carthage um, I, Virgil's uh, I admire that kind of that risk I think he's taking yes there. yeah. Perhaps part of what explains it is the difference between the reaction of the common person, you might say, in Roman society, and then this very thin uh, crust of the aristocratic elite who, again, were thoroughly Hellenized. Right. And uh, one of the examples that comes to mind is Cicero has an explanation, or he has a, an account in one of his letters, of when he uh, visited the, the games and he saw an elephant Mm. That was involved in the in you know the gladi- gladiatorial games, and the elephant was kind of pleading for its life at one point. Yeah, it yeah, yeah. Like. And he was so thoroughly disgusted by it, right? So he goes to the games with a big stack of um, letters and literature because he's he's there, you know, to read and to in, indulge in the life of literature and pursuit of things that are really, really Greek and not especially Roman. Yeah. So the kinds of qualities that are set out by Hainsworth in this quote, yes, they characterize the Roman population as a whole, but I'm wondering if the audience for which Virgil wrote um, would really appreciate those kinds of things. Yeah, it exactly. It was aimed at a very small slice of the population. Right, right. I think that's, that's one of those questions that, that that both fascinates me and frustrates me is like, who, um, you know, who are these works of literature for, right? We don't have the reactions of, you know, if if and when the, the Aeneid was performed or read to a public audience, we don't know, you know, how, how they reacted. Um, and so that question of you know, who exactly is Virgil, who who Livy, who Ovid, who Apuleius, who you know name your your guy, right. who are they letting, who are they writing for, is in some ways um, an unanswerable question, or you can only go so far with it, right? Absolutely, yeah. I actually have this quote from Cicero about the elephant that we could uh, we could throw in here if you'd like to hear it. Yeah, let's do it. He says uh, there remain the two wild beast hunts lasting five days. Magnificent, nobody denies it. And yet, what pleasure can it be to a man of refinement when either a weak man is torn by an extremely powerful animal or a splendid animal is transfixed by a hunting spear? Things which, after all, if worth seeing, you have often seen before. Nor did I, who was present at the games, see anything the least new. The last day was that of the elephants, on which there was a great deal of astonishment on the part of the vulgar crowd, but no pleasure whatever." Nay, there was even a certain feeling of compassion aroused by it and a kind of belief created that that animal has something in common with mankind. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's powerful stuff. Um, I, I like imagining Cicero sitting in the stands with his, exactly. with his scrolls. Right. right. <laughs> his, his iPad or whatever it is. And, right. You know, trying to study philosophy in Plato and secure his legacy as a great thinker. Right. And meanwhile, all the people around him are just going crazy for, for yeah. uh, the killing of elephants. Yeah, yeah. So I don't want to make too much of it because Cicero also champions the same kind of gravitas and fides and so forth that Hainsworth talked about. Mm-hmm. But maybe part of it is explicable by the fact that the Roman population was somewhat diverse in its tastes. Not everyone had that 
layer of Hellenism, you know, laid on top. Of course, right. And I think that that's, I mean, it's always worth considering when we pick up a text like this. You know, Virgil was not writing this, certainly not for us, right? right? Um, but to kind of ch- to funnel that down, uh, who exactly, who who was he writing for? I think that it's very easy to kind of fall into that trap that, um, you know, I hear it in my students' voices. Well, the Greeks believed, fill in the blank, the, Roman, the Romans did, and without considering just the massive, uh, you know, diversity of peoples and beliefs. Right. Um, right. It's always worth, worth taking kind of that step back and considering. Yes. Yeah. So should we go on to the point now where um, Venus makes her first appearance? Yeah, let's do, let's do a, a quick recap. So okay. um, in the last uh, full-length episode, we talked about how um, uh, Aeneas and his fleet was kind of blown off off course by the the winds released by Aeolus. That's correct, um, because of the bribe of Juno. The bribe of Juno, and they wind up on Libyan Carthaginian shores. Correct. Um, Aeneas is convinced that the the you know the better part of his fleet is gone. Correct. He's lost a, a lot of his crewmates and friends. They've been wandering for years. And this was the intervention of Neptune. Yes. Right. Neptune intervened to calm the storm. And to put everything back in its proper order because Aeolus had exceeded his bounds. Yes, exactly, which is more or less the opposite of what we see in the Odyssey, right? Correct. Yep, and one of those many reversals that we were talking about uh, last time. And so now um, Aeneas and uh, um, some of his crewmates, his um, refugees from Troy, find themselves in a strange land and not really knowing where they are and what they should do. So as we pick up here then, mm-hmm. Aeneas is having a sleepless night. He is. Shall we look at a little bit of the Latin and then get the Lombardo translation? Let's do it. Okay, so this is from line 305 of book one. At pius Aeneas per noctem plurima volvens, ut primum lux alma detest exirdre locusque, explorare novos quas ventacesarit oras, qui teneant nam... See, I made a mistake there. That's called an elision. Qui teneant nin culta videt homines neferinae. Very nice. Yeah, I was just I was looking at that line myself, and I, I completely missed that uh, that uh, that elision. Well, I, not, I, the, I, I seldom do it. It's very embarrassing to make a mistake in front of all these people. <laughs> but the word nam, of course, ends with the m, and the following word begins with a vowel. Vowels. So we run them together. Nin culta. That's right. Right. So Lombardo translates this as Aeneas, meanwhile, aware of his duty, was up thinking the whole night through. When dawn kissed his face with light, he resolved to set forth and explore the strange coastline to see which way the wind had blown him and to see who lived there, man or beast. Ah, nice. It's nice. Yeah, a couple of comments on that translation, if I may. Yep. Um, How did he take again... Uh, Aeneas, uh, aware of his duty, is that was that the aware of his duty? Yeah, right. so that's his translation of pious. Right. We were talking about that last time about how the the the, the lazy translation of that word pious right. doesn't get at the the Romanness of it. So I think this is a good approximation. And then line three hundred six, when dawn kissed his face, was yes. that the? Yes. Yeah. So that's how he is rendering alma because it's ut primum lux alma detest. So as soon as. Um, the, the Luke's Alma, the, the gentle, the welcoming, the fostering light, yes. the fostering dawn was given when dawn kissed his face. I like that. Yeah, I like that a lot, too. Um, I think that um, I, I, I don't want to dump on, on Homer. Far be it for me to dump on Homer. But no, that would be inappropriate. That would be inappropriate. But I think uh, when it comes to kind of these uh, kind of subtle and soft descriptions of nature, um, I think Virgil has it over Homer. Yeah, I, I, I just I, something about it. I, I like it. I, I like it better. It hits me. Hmm. Hits me in a in a warmer kind of place than hmm. 
than does the Iliad and the Odyssey. Hmm. But um, it's hard to beat Rhododactylos Eos. It is uh, true. Rosy fingered dawn. Rosy fingered dawn. That's um, just so the, brilliant. And, and the wine dark sea. Yeah, I mean, I love Merope. I love that kind of stuff. But there's, mm-hmm. I think Virgil kind of he um, he in some ways he takes it he takes it to a, a, another level. Would you like to hear yeah. the Krizak couplet here? Yeah, please, please. So these are the same lines. Yet good Aeneas. Worried by his thoughts all night, decides to rise the moment that he sees the light. Hmm. And scout these places, strands to which the winds have blown them. What fauna hunt these unplowed lands, what people own them. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, a couple comments. First of all, it's very hard to rhyme poetry like this. Yes. And maintain any kind of meaning. Right. Um, I like uh, Plurima Walwain's Worried by His Thoughts All Night. Mm. I think Krizak got that very nice. Good as a translation of Pius, as opposed to what, what did Lombardo say? Intent on his duty. What was it? Aware uh, of his duty. Aware of his duty. I think yeah. I think good is a little weak. Yeah. Uh, as a translation of Pius, um, decides to rise the moment that he sees the light. This is the ut primum lux alma detest. Yeah. And uh, it's accurate. But uh, just in this little sample, I'd have to give the palm to Lombardo. Lombardo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although now that I'm thinking like that. Um, yeah, good. I think is it's it's a bit it, it, it's a bit thin. But if you have to translate it forty times in the in the epic, right, right, exactly. I, it's I mean, a challenge. It, true. Um, and so Lombardo is aware of his duty. Um, I mean, he seems to connect this idea that Aeneas's um, um, you know, obligation to his duty that's what's keeping him up. Yes, exactly. Right. And so I don't know if, if the Latin necessarily suggests that. It allows it. it al- I'm yeah. not sure it suggests it. Right. And another thing that, that so the um, this what Lombardo translate was up thinking the whole night through. That's um, per noctum plurum the Walwains. Right. I mean, I like the, I, the idea of Walwains. I, I just, I mean, tossing and turning. Right? Correct. And so I, I think if you if you miss that kind of that that physicality of that. Mm. I mean, there are similar descriptions of Odysseus, like tossing like a, like a sausage in a frying pan. Right. right? That's a great um, one. But um, was up thinking through the whole night through, I think kind of robs it of, of kind of its, mm. its physicality. Mm-hmm. He's woolwings. He's, he's right. rolling about. Right? Yes. But, yeah. That's very good. But, it's easy to kind of pick nits like this and, and oh yeah and, and fun too. But we're academics. That's what we do. <laughs> that's right, that's exactly. our bread and butter. All right. Um, so have we? Have we? Um, have we? I think we've taken these two sure. translators to task mm-hmm. enough. Yep. All right. Yep. Let's move on then. Okay. So uh, he's um, so he's tossing and turning, and he decides to kind of walk forth and explore this place. And this is one of these these places where I thought, ah, here's a uh, not a major difference between Odysseus and Aeneas. Um, but I think a significant one. So if you remember back, uh, listeners, and um, if you don't, go back to listen to our Odyssey episodes. Um, when Odysseus arrives at strange islands, when he goes to the Cyclops Island or goes to the Lastragonians or even Circe's house, um, Odysseus usually does not go marching in himself. Mm-hmm. He sends off a couple of flunkies mm-hmm. to kind of detest the waters and maybe take the, the bullets. That's right. That he the must, red shirt guys. Exactly. From they, Star Trek. Exactly right. But Aeneas does not do that. He goes with Akates, his, his kind of his right hand man, and he goes himself. Which I thought, I don't know if the, if I'm making too much of that, but is that Aeneas being kind of um, the, the brave Roman, you know, the general, you know, this idea that a general should do everything that the soldiers would do, you know, right. sleep on the ground and and um, and you know go through their own sufferings and not kind of go over the wall first. Go over the wall first. Whereas Odysseus, being crafty and clever, says, "No, I have I have people to do that for me." Well, I think you've ge- you've uh, definitely put your point on the key difference between the two heroes. The one is bent on self-preservation, that's Odysseus, mm-hmm. and the other is driven by this crushing sense of duty. 
he has to succeed in founding a nation, founding a race. It's a very different epic journey. Odysseus is simply trying to get home to a place that already exists. So, are you sympathetic to Odysseus in that kind of that um, just you know wanting just to just just to survive? No, because I'm a Christian, and oh. <laughs> and the the concept of self sacrifice is. Mm is essential. I seek to make it essential to my identity because, you know, it's the uh, it's the character of uh, my God who is self, yeah. self-sacrificial, our God, uh, yours and mine. Um, and so Aeneas is more self-sacrificing. Right. And Odysseus is just more self-preserving. Yes. But in terms of enjoying literature, right, I don't necessarily read literature to be taught the principles of self-sacrifice. Right. So enjoying literature, Odysseus is a more entertaining character, right. but a, a less um, a less compelling model for my own behavior. Yeah, nicely put. I think you put the, 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 the finger on them. And, but, but I think that um, I put your finger on, on ways that we can both kind of enjoy and admire these two characters in, in different kinds of ways. Absolutely. Yep. So he goes out and he explores um, a little bit and uh, doesn't take too long, just a few lines, and then his mother shows up. Venus, Correct. Venus. So um, should we read a little bit of this? Do yes, you, let's oh, do that. Okay, just in translation, or do you want to... Do, it's it's us, up to you. Let's just let's do some uh, translation here. I'll give Lombardo's take okay. on this. Um, so in the Lombardo translation, this is at line 385. Um, and there in the middle of the forest was his mother coming toward him. She looked and dressed like a young woman and bore a huntress's weapons. She could have been a Spartan girl or Harpalike of Thrace, who outruns horses and the Hebrus's rapids. With a supple blow was supple, sorry, with a supple bow was slung over her shoulders in the style of a huntress, and she had let her hair fly loose in the wind. Her flowing robe was cinched up in a knot, offering a glimpse of her knees. Oh. Why do you think uh, and I'm not fishing for any particular kind of answer, why do you yeah. think that Virgil has Venus show up in uh, a, a Diana-like guise? I mean, Anis even mistakes her for the um, uh, Phoebe Soror, you know, right. the sister of Phoebus. Right. Why do you think he he presents Venus in that kind of way? So is the is the question why that way or why in disguise at all? Well, and I think I get the disguise part. I mean, I think he's tagging Homer, you know, Athena as mentor and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, but why choose this very specific, um, you know? Unvenusian guys of, I see. of of Diana. I think it's very deliberate. He wouldn't have Aeneas mistake her for Diana if he didn't mean that connection. Right. I, I'm just. I, is there? Do you see any kind of layer there? Well, I'm wondering if what we're seeing here is a little bit of a recharacterization of Venus. Prior to Virgil and his depiction of her, she's not really presented as a goddess who drives the action. Right. So if you think about like in the in the Iliad, she's kind of complaining uh to to paris yes she runs up to zeus when she's when she's daddy zeus when she's wounded correct she, yeah she's very passive but yeah please go but on for the most part there isn't really a lot that she does that is meaningful for the plot yeah this is quite different here she has to negotiate with juno she has to again plead with her father she's really going to drive aeneas forward through most of the epic and so presenting her in a traditional um kind of a wallflower sort of uh, portrayal is not going to really serve the needs of the story so well. Yeah. But dressing her up here as a woman of action who is resembling Artemis, you know, who's always looking out for Artemis and doing amazing, uh, physically amazing things, maybe that's more plausible. Yeah. No, I, I, I like that. It, it also struck me that um, you, know, you have this 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 really st- um, striking dichotomy 
between um, Venus, who is traditionally a kind of uh, you know goddess of love, has always struck me as way too subtle. She's a goddess of lust, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and here in disguise as a goddess of the of Diana Artemis, who is fiercely virginal. That's like, right, right. And so um, it struck me that I don't, in some ways, maybe Virgil is setting up a kind of choice for Aeneas, right? He's going to meet Dido, and he's going to fall for her, and she's going to fall for him. That's uh, right. Not with not without um, uh, not without you know. Um, Machinations by by Venus and, and Amor, um, but they fall for each other, and so the kind of questions of which way is is Aeneas going to go, which way is Dido going to go? Are they going to you know, fall into love slash lust, or are they going to choose the path of action and duty, correct, and a, a chastity to yes. some degree, yeah. duty to their respective nations that yes. they represent? Exactly right. Yeah. So they um, they have this this um, this uh, dialogue between them. You know, um, Aeneas wants to find out. You know who she is and, right. and where they are. Tell me something about the, about the land. Um, and Venus goes on to tell him kind of the backstory of Dido. That's right. Um, you want you want to kind of summarize that a little bit? Or? Sure. Well, I'd, I'd like to read a little bit of the Cresac Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, please here, do. Just to get a little bit of variety. Before Aeneas speaks, she, that of course is Venus, hails him. Young men say, if you have seen my sister wandering this way, a quiver round her and a mottled lynx hide, or full cry in hot pursuit to spear some foaming boar. Thus Venus, then the son of Venus, spoke this word. This, of course, is Aeneas. Your sister's lady, I have neither seen nor heard, but how should I address you? Yours is not a human face, your voice not human, goddess more than woman. You must be Phoebus's sister. Are you of the line of nymphs? Whoever lift our burden, be benign. What coast have we been cast upon? Tell us what sky we wander under, errant, ignorant, the high waves, and the winds have blown us to this unknown land. We'll feed your altar victims from a grateful hand. Hmm. I'm I'm kind of I'm getting into the. Are you liking it? I'm kind of liking the the. I mean I'm usually kind of against that because it always sounds. Okay. It's always like you know, pounding a square peg into a round hole. Right. Um, but I'm I like that. I like so you're not not a fan of Alexander Pope or maybe some of the Dryden? Not really. Okay. Not really. But I mean I, I kind of like the rhythm to it. I could I could hear the the beat. I could hear the yep. music behind it. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Aeneas doesn't recognize his mother as no. his mother, but I mean, I get the sense from certainly the backstory he 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 never really knew his mother all that well. No, right? I mean it was. Um, but he's angry about this later, you know, in this same episode. He yeah. complains, "Why do you always have to appear to me in disguises? Why can't we just speak face to face and friend to friend?" Yeah, mom's playing games. Exactly. Right. Very infuriating to him. Yeah, and I I feel for him. That I is, do too. That is maddening. But uh, he does recognize that this is no ordinary mortal, right? He recognizes there's something divine about her right and that's why he asks these questions are you a nymph are you are you right. diana right and how do you recognize a deity in the homeric virgilian world again they're very tall about nine feet tall they have an ambrosial smell there's something rosy about the back of their neck that yes that's the, that's the become, that becomes the giveaway when she turns and leaves and that's exactly. when he says oh that's that's my mom right right and the fourth thing is that they don't really walk they kind of glide over the surface of the earth right I'm trying to think, you know, how you would, I don't think the Aeneid has ever been, there's, there's never been a miniseries or a movie. I don't think so. Any yeah. kind of representation. And how would you, you know, how would you do that, a scene like that without looking just completely stupid? I don't right? know. <laughs> I don't right. know. There is one little nod to the Aeneid at the end of the movie Troy. Do you remember we did an episode on Troy? We do. I don't remember this illusion, though. More Bods Than Gods (laughs) was the title that we came up with. Way back when, yeah. Way back when. Turned out to be kind of a dud. Yeah. You're you're kind of, you're annoyed like Aeneas is with his mother. I am a little bit, because I thought, (laughs) 
you know, you, you've been, let's, let's be honest here, yep. Jeff, you've been driving us all along to let's make this pop culture relevant, right? Because yes. that's, that's what you know so much about compared to me. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. and this is, this is our dynamic, right? We go back and forth on yep. this. Yep. So I thought this is going to be a big hit, but no, it's kind of a flop. So you're, you're, I, I feel like you're kind of annoyed with me. Mostly. For wanting to pushing it that in that direction. <laughs> well, I wouldn't have been annoyed if it had succeeded. I see. If everybody see. had rushed to it and said, oh, those guys talking about that shampoo commercial with uh, Brad Pitt. <laughs> oh, man. That was great. That was great. Let's, let's do it again. Yeah. yeah no. Yeah, but no. at the very end, I believe Achilles, Brad, yes. uh, hands a sword to a young man. Aeneas and says, "Here, you know, keep this safe. Go, go, found a city or something that's like right, that." That's right. That's right. It's a and oh yes, it's oh it's it's, it's a terrible. It's scene. It's bad in part <laughs> because Achilles and uh, Aeneas, although not equals on the battlefield, they're roughly the same age. Yeah. Whereas in this portrayal, you know, he's twelve or something. Right. It's way off. It's way off. And uh, um, what's the percentage of the audience that would have gotten that illusion? And appreciated it. Right. I don't know. Very low. Right. So. All right, so the rest of the encounter between um, Aeneas and his mother is made up of kind of two parts. The first part is um, Venus gives the background. Who is Dido? Where does she come from? Um, what is she fleeing? And then, the, the, and then Aeneas gets his chance to kind of tell his story about kind of where they come from. So um, let's talk a little bit about this kind of this backstory of Dido, which I think is so, is so fascinating. So they are, um, they are Tyrians, right? They are from Phoenicia. They are That's not, correct. They are not native-born... Carthaginians. They no. are starting something completely new. Correct. So right away we have Dido is, I think, you know, Virgil signaling, this woman has a lot in common with Aeneas, right? They've both lost in some ways everything. And they're going off and they're going to start something new and they both have kind of deities on their side. In some ways, um, couldn't this be kind of a match made uh, on Olympus, right? That's right. They're perfect for each other. Right. Um, but, uh, and so uh, they both have these tragic backgrounds. Uh, Venus tells Aeneas that... Um, you know, Dido was a um, of royalty mm-hmm. back in in uh, back in Tyre, back yes. in Phoenicia. So that that region, just for our audience, that region of Tyre, Phoenicia, this is what is today Palestine. So it's you know south of Lebanon. Yes. It's uh, it's right in the Middle East there, and that entire region was colonized by Phoenicians, who then also colonized Cyprus. So now we're talking about the history, mm-hmm. and then they colonized a lot of North Africa past the Greek settlements in the region of Carthage. And they sailed successfully uh, through the Straits of Gibraltar, past the Pillars of Hercules, and founded the city of Cadiz, uh, or mm. Gades, in Spain, uh, around on the western coast. There are even stories that they circumnavigated Africa, that they went all the way around Africa. And some people believe, although no reputable scholars that I'm aware of, that the Phoenicians also made it uh, to North America. Mm. and set up a bunch of um, settlements here uh, on this continent, which I don't think anybody reputable believes that. Right. But we'll probably get some hate mail from those who are (laughs) true believers. There's some supposed potential inscription in Kentucky that has been suggested to be linked to the the Phoenicians or the Carthaginians. Yeah, so then there are the two cities of Tyre and Sidon, Mm -hmm. and this is where Dido comes from. Yes. And why does she have to leave home? Well, um, Venus tells us that she was uh, married uh, uh, previous to uh, Sacchaeus. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a, a very good match. Uh, but they, uh, he uh, becomes a rival with her brother, Pygmalion. Okay. And, and ultimately, uh, Pygmalion kills her husband and tries to cover it up. How does Dido find out about what? the death of her husband? Sacchaeus appears to her in a, in a vision. Ah. Uh, kind of a, a, um, from, from beyond the grave. 
kind of tells her what went down. And I love this detail. It's um, her her uh, now dead husband was also had a lot of foresight because he had hidden away a lot of this this gold and mm. silver, right? Um, which apparently Pygmalion was after. And he tells Dido in this dream, says, no, your brother killed me. Um, here's where you can find all this treasure. Uh, pack it up and get out of here. Mm. And she uh, she uh, listens and goes. Mm. That's phenomenal. It is phenomenal. It's Have a, you ever had anyone reveal information to you in a dream? Never. Never. My dreams are usually just so nonsensical and absurd that mm. they seem to be completely devoid of any meaning mm. um, at all. Have you had messages in a dream? No, I've had what um, in my you know half waking hours seem like messages. Yeah. And they seem really meaningful. But then when I awake, I realize this is something absurd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or if I, I've, I, I have had that feeling where you kind of wake up and there's something profound has happened in my exactly. mind and then you and then it disappears you can't remember you it. can't get it that's right? very frustrating it is it's very liminal as well but we're not <laughs> going to go down that path i promise i promise right all right so um dido is is um she's heartbroken yes she's lost everything she's lost her home um i mean the, the one the, the one kind of bright light is that she hasn't not been left with with nothing mm-hmm. she has this tremendous amount of treasure that she can take with her and she uh, heads for the north, north coast of Africa and lands at what will one day be Carthage. Mm-hmm. And so, um, of course, Aeneas, uh, he lost in the, in the fires of Troy as, as Troy was being sacked. He lost his own wife, uh, Creusa, and escapes with his father and his son and the household gods. And so, they have, again, they have this similar kind of tragic rom- um, romantic background mm-hmm. that they are running from and trying to start something new. And what about the, uh, that's a wonderful summary, thank you. What about the story of how they were able to get a toehold there in North Africa? The story of the bursa and the oxhide? Oh, yeah. Can you explain? That's, I mean, that uh, on the face of it strikes, I think it would strike in a most readers very, is very odd. How, do, how does that go? Well, there seems to be some historical basis for this, actually. Really? Yes. Are, we, is, is this, are the Tyrians going to Kentucky again here? <laughs> no, but uh, there was a person named Alyssa or Dido. Mm-hmm. And um, the Carthaginians did, in fact, in the 9th century, that's the 800s, or the 8th century BC, journey west from Palestine, from yep. Phoenicia. And they did, in fact, colonize Carthage and made some uh, efforts to colonize parts of southern Sicily. So the story to which Virgil alludes, here I'm reading the Cresac translation, goes like this. Of Carthage you see rising and high walls as well. This land was bought outright, so Bursa is its name. The ground a bull's hide compassed all that they could claim. So the story is that when they arrived, they said, we would like to purchase some land. Now the indigenous persons didn't want to give up their property, even though it was not being stolen. They were going to purchase it with this supply of gold and silver that Dido had brought right. from uh, Sicaius, which he had he had squirreled away. So what they said was, well, you can have as much land as you can surround with one ox hide. Okay. But they were clever, right? The Carthaginians were shrewd. They were clever. So what did they do? They took this hide and they cut it up into tiny, tiny little strips. And then they stretched this ox hide out to a great size. And of course, it covered then... I don't know how many hundreds of acres or square miles mm-hmm. because they cut it down into tiny little bits. Yes, that now that now that's some that's some matus there. That's, that's some right. Cleverness. That's yeah. the kind of trickiness that the Carthaginians are known for. That's their punica fides. There you go. There you go. I, I find it interesting that in the text that um, 
Venus doesn't really explain that. I mean, it's clearly uh, a legend, a story that the the Romans, that you know, Virgil's audience would have been familiar with. Yes. Would, would need it, but Aeneas doesn't speak up. Uh, um, like, what's that with the oxide? What, what are you talking about? Right. He just kind of he, he lets that just kind of slide. That's past, right. He's right? not very interested in that. Right. There's a line in there in the in the Latin, um, which uh, it just remind remind me of um, of grad school mm-hmm. where um, it's Lombardo uh, translates this. So Venus goes through all of these things that have happened. And, you know, the rising of the new walls at Carthage and Lombardo translates this as a woman did this. I believe oh, the Latin is, is, right. is dux femina facti. That's correct. Uh, a woman was the leader of the deed. That's right. Right. And um, why does this remind you of we, grad school? There was a cohort of um, young uh, female undergraduates um, who were, uh, you know, kind of shaking their feminist fists. Uh-huh. And were very, um, they were very drawn to Dido, and they had these T-shirts made up with some kind of like a vase painting, and then underneath oh. they put Dukes Femina Facti. Oh, nice! Yes, yeah. This is line three sixty four. Yeah, um, and it is striking, you know, that um, we have Dido, um, a woman, yes. in charge of this expedition, right? Not to go all, you know, politically correct or feminist on it, but it is, it's notable. It's right. it, it's notable in the same way that. Like, I think Antigone is notable. Yes. And um, I, I, here again, we don't see a lot of this kind of thing in uh, the Iliad or the Odyssey. And so here again, I think Aeneas is, I, clearly, as you were saying, he's building upon a known kind of you know, quasi-history. Um, but it's also kind of striking that the Dido's leadership is unquestioned. Yes. Yeah. Of course, when we get to the uh, we get to book four, and then we see about Dido's terrible fate. Well, it all falls a apart. A lot of the supposed <laughs> feminist tendencies of Dido are a little bit undone. Right. We could, and and you could also blame that on Venus and Amor and and um, and, and the Furies as well. But um, point taken. Speaking of the Furies, it's time for the ads. Of course. <laughs> This episode of Odd Nauseam brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing for the last 50 years, exactly 50 years. That's correct. This, this year is, is their anniversary. Their anniversary year um, with offices in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, they've been putting out affordable, uh, readable, digestible, just great volumes from the classics, translations of the classics, and all from all of their corners of academia for all these years. Um, right now, I have in front of me, I'm looking at um, Stanley Lombardo's a translation of the Aeneid. And I've talked a lot in these ads yes. over the last couple of years about how I love the covers. Right. And so here the kind of the, the back photo is a um, a detail from the Vietnam Vietnam War Memorial in DC with of, of course I'm sure many of you are aware um, is uh, has just all the names of the of the dead and inscribed onto that wall. And we're getting to where after the break we'll be talking a little bit about this scene where um, uh, Aeneas already sees set in stone scenes from the Trojan War, and he right. sees himself, and he sees his lost comrades there. Just what a, what a tremendous, wonderful, uh, and subtle corollary to that. Absolutely, and that sums up kind of what I love about about Hackett. Um, they're uh, they're so careful and so subtle and so interesting the way they put these things together. Um, it's really uh, brilliant. It's really brilliant. So, uh, Dave, what do you like about well, Hackett? I, I'm looking at the website now, and I see just a really broad selection of different kinds of works that they have on offer here. We have the West. Western literary tradition, Islamic legal theory, Plato's laws, hidden Berlin about some of the sites of the city of Berlin, seven myths of military history, a samurai, a source book, uh, the essential Greek historians, classics in the Western philosophy of art, 
and Common Ground, a new set of essays on second language acquisition. So you can see that this is a broad array of really interesting material yeah. that Hackett is providing to its readership. Right. So listener, go to HackettPublishing.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-T-T Publishing.com. And just have a look around. That's right. And if you feel so inclined, um, click on some text that you like, put them in your little grocery satchel. And um, what's our coupon code? If they yes, put in- it's AN2022, the current year. So ad nauseum, 2022. Yes. And that's going to get you, you ready for this? Yes. 20% off any order and free shipping and free shipping that's a very very generous yes it's Uh, incredible we love this company they've been with us from the beginning uh please check them out this episode of ad nauseum is also brought to you by pop city popcorn located in kalamazoo michigan gourmet popcorn jeff tell us what you like about pop city well first i'm gonna tell you not what i i I like about pop city but what i generally don't like about salty snacks okay let's hear it and i'm um my family can attest to this is that i'm not i'm generally not a huge fan of like the flavored popcorn like if it's savory like like the cheese or whatever i it and i realized yeah why i don't like it it's because it tastes so fake i see the artificiality artificiality and so when pop city sent us the 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 sampler right and i tasted their parmesan cheese right i said oh this is how it's supposed to be you were hooked i was hooked because it was the real deal it didn't taste phony it didn't taste fake it was it was tremendous yeah your doctor authenticity as i like to say yes yeah you call me that all the time i do yes (laughs) in fact i think this is the first occasion (laughs) but um but like in the in the sweet variety, right? I, I the the their two way drizzle was, yes. was great. Um, their variations on the caramel corn and the chocolate, it was it was fantastic. Yeah, the buffalo, uh, the buffalo mix where they use a kind of a barbecue seasoning that's that's uh, imitating the 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 chicken wings of a famous restaurant that we probably can't name. That's right. And uh, I got a little bit of pushback from our friends at Pop City. You did. What was the problem? Well, because in the very first ad, the debut, the debut, if you will. Yeah. I uh, accidentally said that Central Michigan was located in Kalamazoo. Oh. And you corrected me immediately. It's an honest mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Western Michigan, the Broncos. The Broncos, exactly. Because of course, Broncos roam the plains of of (laughs) South Central Michigan. It's it's sometimes you're stuck in the freeway exactly stampede broncos on the way to kalamazoo (laughs) and they said look you know our friends at pop city they said look you can't mention central michigan and kalamazoo in the same breath now the bronco fans are gonna go crazy i I didn't know they were so so pride oh yeah of their locality absolutely but getting back to popcorn yes (laughs) yeah you you said that mrs winkle loves the dill pickle flavor the dill pickle was yes again surprising like right it's one of those that i would see that and say uh, I'm not going to go there, but no. you taste it, and it's it tastes real, it's so real. It yeah, is the, so real. The bacon cheddar, fantastic. Yep. So again, you know, you're living the AN life. We like to say, right? <laughs> yes. The ad nauseum. You're drinking fine coffee. You're ordering your book, ordering your books from Hackett. Uh, you're reading your books, and you got a bowl of popcorn there, right, right? there. Just a simple pleasure, one of life's simple pleasures. What more do you need? Yes, and how can one of our audience members, how can they score themselves some great popcorn, Well, Jeff? they need to go to the Pop City uh, website, mm-hmm. which is... It's popcitypopcorn.com. Right, so listeners, go check it out. It's a really attractive website, and you can see the vast array of flavors and styles they um, they have on offer. That's right. Find the ones you like. Um, and as far as the coupon code, code, it is ANPOP20. That's correct. And I'm looking right here. Strawberry cheesecake. Oh goodness! It's a great gift for mom and our first sign of spring. I'm gonna I'm gonna check out the movie night basket at one point. Well, that sounds about right. Yeah, because don't you like to watch movies and then all the work's done for you and the popcorn's already there. It's already there. No schlepping all the way to the 
kitchen and turning on the microwave and all the difficult buttons and so forth. Yeah, exactly. Who needs that hassle? That's right. That's hassle. So if they if they put in that code, um, what do they get, Dave? They're going to get 20% off their first order. Fantastic. Check it out, please. And this episode of Ad Nauseam also brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Mark Helwig and his team of geniuses out there, are they still out there in Portland? Portland, you betcha. Portland. Uh, they've done it. They've solved all your brew-based problems. That's right. Um, they have these wonderful, uh, attractive uh, works of art types of machines uh, that just per- that brew every morning for you, for me, the perfect cup of coffee. That's correct. I'm drinking some coffee right now as we speak. You are? Well, I mean, it's right here in my hand. Oh, that's what's in that thing. Exactly. Okay. That I brewed this morning in yeah. my Ratio 8. And it wasn't like going to the microwave and trying to make your own popcorn. This machine has one button. Yeah. Could it be any simpler, any more foolproof? Yeah, exactly. Right. Have you ever used one of those? Uh, I can't. I, they. It's like the one cup thing. You know, I, I was in a hotel with my family oh, yes, recently. It's, they, um, Gurick, yeah, yeah. Gure, I think it's Gurick, something Gurick, like Gurick, something That's like that. That's right. So, and they it brews this little tiny cup. Correct. I was in a hotel with my family recently. That was it's, the only thing I offer. It's just, oh. it's just tepid and thin, a little bit gruely. Yeah. I kept looking for a stone in the bottom, or maybe some pieces of barley. I couldn't tell yeah. is is this soup or is it coffee? Exactly right. And you reach for just kind of your one tiny cup. You miss the weight of that hulking oh, carafe. It's really disappointing. It's disappointing. And so. they got the Kindle brick right underneath it too. Yeah, exactly. Yes, but not the Ratio 6 or the Ratio 8. One-touch simplicity, and then the fantastic bloom stage, which is where the magic happens. That is. That's the mysterious bloom stage where all of the nasty uh, carbon dioxide is off-gassed into the the netherworld, and it leaves all the roasty goodness behind for you. Sweet, delicious coffee goes right down into your carafe and it's kept warm there for hours yes so i have the ratio six dave has the ratio eight both fine machines yours is in uh, stainless steel stainless steel yeah and there's not going to be any blemishes or marks or detractions from the the good looks of that machine no it looks like it looks like robocop yes it just came out of the uh robocop one or robocop two (laughs) definitely the first one yeah right second one was now you're going to star in the third one i I, if if that's if 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 offered i'd take it when you finish working on teen wolf (laughs) that's right Exactly right, right. And you've got the eight with uh, with its uh, its oyster accents. I yeah, well, no, no, the, no. The oyster is the color. Oh, okay. So it matches my countertop and my my cabinets very nicely, and then it has walnut accents. Walnut accents. That's right. Uh, but you know, I've, I was shopping through the racial catalog a little bit, and I was thinking, uh, I really I really like some of these other um, machines. The the beauty and the you know the combination of beautiful elements. But the problem is, yeah. I'm going to be with this ratio for the next 40 years because it's never going to break. Exactly. It's an, heir- to, it's an heirloom. Exactly. I'm going to have to buy a second house in order to get a second ratio. Exactly right. this one is just going to keep working brilliantly. Right. Exactly. And that, I mean, those those are problems worth having. I Absolutely. Think. Right. So if you go, uh, so listen, if you go to ratiocoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O coffee.com, um, order up either the six or the eight or both if you want to type in the uh, the coupon code i believe it is a n c o five j that's correct the yep. j in honor of jeff a n c o five j and that will get you fifteen uh, percent off that's correct yep. check it out All right, Jeff, so as we get back into it, before we get to Aeneas' arrival in Carthage, should we look at the complaint which he levels against his mother, Venus? Yeah, Yeah, this is interesting. Give us a little bit of the Latin there, would you? Yes, so he says, Quid natum totiens crudelis, tu quoque falsis, ludis imaginibus cur dextra jungere dextram, non datur aqueras audi ret retera Which Lombardo translates as, 
You! Do you have to cheat your son with empty appearances? Why can't we at least embrace and talk to each other in our own true voices? Yeah. That's, I, I find that, fa- that you know, the relationship between Venus and, and Aeneas interesting. Again, a tremendous departure from the Odyssey. You know, Athena is, is Odysseus's patron goddess in many ways, but you know, Athena, of course, is not Odysseus's mother. So we have this, 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 um, this, this dynamic here that Aeneas is not only has he lost his wife, he's lost his city, he's lost his, his, his heritage, um, he's kind of a latchkey kid. That's right. right? He doesn't even have uh, his mother is 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 alive. She's a goddess, mm-hmm. um, but sh- he has very little contact with her. Mm-hmm. And, if, and I find this kind of this complaint, this kind of this simple longing of a of a son wanting to know his mom very very moving. Yeah, it's very compelling. Yeah, it it does generate a little bit of sympathy and compassion toward a character that can at times seem fairly bland. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said. But of course, Venus does not respond. Doesn't even answer. She actually, and we learn in the next line, she actually packs up and goes um, back off east uh, to her. And she says she's happy to be back in her temple with her ambrosia and her attendants. That's right. right. <laughs> Very hard. Very hard. And Aeneas is left, is left alone. Right. So now he approaches. So Venus, um, as she did to him in the Iliad, she wraps him in a mist. That's right. In, and his, his friends that are with him. To, uh, oh, wraps uh, Aeneas in the mist. In the mist, yes. Mm-hmm. And so they can approach Carthage um, you know, incognito and kind of see, see things. And um, You ever been wrapped in a mist? I've never. Well, I've driven in fog. It's not, it's not very enjoyable. You've been to Scotland, haven't you? I have been to Scotland. Mm-hmm. And the, I actually was, the time I was there, it was actually very sunny. The whole, oh, not, I've never been in Scotland when it's sunny. It's, I don't think it is sunny there often. I was no. actually hoping for some, you know, mist coming off the moors and, right. and such like that. I wanted kind of that haunted Scotland. Bodotria, right? The right. Firth of Forth. The Firth of Forth. <laughs> yeah. All I got was mist. Usually, was really? wrapped in mist the whole time. I, I, I take it by your tone, you didn't enjoy that. Didn't enjoy it. So no. I get out of bed in the morning in my, um, my authentic Scottish hotel. I think it was the Holiday Inn. Take the elevator down to the to the um, main level. You know, get the Scottish breakfast with the haggis and the blood sausage. Yeah, and then walk out because they they actually do serve that at the Holiday Inn. And then walk out into the street, and there was the mist waiting for me. Had been sitting in the lobby and just <laughs> enveloped me, and on we went. Said, so, "Oh, there you are. Let's right, go." Exactly. <laughs> Is it eight thirty already? Time to see the city. At least the first, you know, five feet of it ahead of your face. Right. So it wasn't a magical divine experience no. like Aeneas is having here at no, all. No, it was right. troublesome. That's right. Well, let, let's let's change. Let's uh, let's uh, let's move on. To, okay. So right. they head toward the city. This mm-hmm. is line four eighteen. Caripoe rewin teriaqua semita monstrat yamqua scende bant colemqui plurimus urbi imminent adwar sasquad specta de super arces. Yes, so Alambardo again. The two heroes, meanwhile, followed the path and ascended a hill high above the city. And looking down, Aeneas was amazed at the sheer size of the place. Once a few hovels, the city gates, the bustle of the paved streets, the Tyrians were hard at work building walls, fortifying the citadel, rolling boulders by hand, making out sites for houses with trenches. Yes. So they're standing up on a ridge. It's a hustle and bustle. It's a hustle and bustle. And it's not long after that Aeneas kind of goes to his go-to nature scene. He loves bees. That's right. And so you mean Virgil goes to his... Sorry, sorry. Yes, right. Virgil goes to his, uh, one of his favorite uh, right. his nature metaphors, the, the bees. And so right. it's like, um, these busy bees, you know, working at the hive. This is like uh, Richard Scarry's Busy Town, right? Oh, yeah. We need some kind of... Um, Sort of symphonic music, dun 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 dun. Exactly right. Yeah, I loved those books as a kid. And did you did you read those? To you I like them. Yeah, There's yeah. no plot. There's no plot, but the, it's just a, a dizzying array of of, uh, of characters. Yeah, I have this. I have this uh, real, um, you know, 
angry feeling toward plotless books. <laughs> really? Like Goodnight Moon. Oh, yeah, that's brutal. There's no plot there. No, 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 exactly. No, a lot of those those clapboard books you, le- you read to your, your two-year-old, three-year-old children are, right. oh, it's, it's awful. I think oatmeal is featured prominently in that story. Is There is oatmeal. A- any In Goodnight Moon or yeah. Mush. Mush, so, something it's the like mush, that. right, exactly. Any book that has oatmeal as a main character is just really not going to be very it's exciting. Exactly. Yeah, it's, there's, I mean, there's, it's no secret why that was never made into a feature film. <laughs> <laughs> but the one about the caterpillar... Which one? I think it's Eric Carle. The hungry caterpillar. Yeah. yeah who just kind of eats through stuff. Exactly. That, that has a that has a perceptible plot. It does. It has drama and conflict. I like that. He's making his way through sausage and strawberries. Exactly. And, right, right, right. I'm for it. I'm for it. <laughs> so, so here we have the same kind of scene that, that Aeneas and Akatis, trusty Akatis, they look down and they see all the hustle and bustle of Carthage. Yes. And um, in a departure, from, again, from Homer... Odysseus is trying to get back home mm. uh, to an established home. Here, Aeneas is hoping to establish a new home somewhere. And I love the emotions here that uh, he's, uh, um, I think it's in the line that, that followed the one we just you just read, but he's, he's, he's lamenting and he's saying, you know, look at this. These people are way ahead of us. Yes, right? they're almost finished. Yeah. Happy are those whose walls already rise, I believe. Is, yes, is, is, exactly. Is the translation of that, of that mm. famous line. And um, yeah, he's, it reminds me of I, this when I read this last night, it it um, it made me think of that that story about Julius Caesar going to Alexandria, and seeing and seeing kind of a city, mm. how a city is supposed to be, and thinking of his mind, you know, Rome compared to this is a dump, right? And he comes back home. He doesn't. I mean, he's murdered not long after, but he comes back home with these grand designs. Says, We've got to build Alexandria, exactly, right? So it's a similar kind of thing here, right? It also reminds me of that that you know that feeling that uh, uh, I don't know if you remember this. You know, on the college and uh, when you were in college where all your friends had finished their exams and they were taking off and you still had four more to go oh. and, and the, the campus is deserted. That is a, that's a horrible feeling. That is a really disheartening. Right. So I, I, that's what I feel. Aeneas is like, oh. When your exam is scheduled for the very last slot. The last slot and the last day, everybody's gone. Right. People are packing up their vehicles and there's a general sense of summary joy. Right. Lots of hooting and hollering. That's right. Yeah, nobody, you don't want to hear that. Right. Mm-mm. So that's, that's Aeneas. I think Aeneas is in that slot right mm. now. Yeah. All right, I want to jump to one of my favorite scenes in book one. It's it's when, uh, you know, Aeneas uh, and his his com- his comrades, you know, wrapped in this mist, they're kind of free to roam around and look at things without being disturbed, and they come upon these murals, and they quickly realize that the scenes they're they're looking at are scenes from the Trojan War, and they start to recognize themselves and their lost companions. Yes, and I think here, this is Virgil. I think again, one upping Homer. So I mean, the corollary here is um, the Bard Demodocus. Uh, amongst the Phaeacian court. So who starts singing these songs for entertainment and Odysseus realizes he's singing the songs of Troy. Right. His, his fame has preceded him. And here Aeneas is doing a similar kind of thing, but he puts it in visual form. Right. So um, Demodocus had the soundtrack and here we get the movie. That's right. These, these, these visual images. And, so, and to me, in some ways, that's, it's more powerful. Um, that you know, it's. I think it's easier in some ways to to sing an abstract song about people, but to depict them in a physical form in a way that they even recognize themselves is extraordinary. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, the, so that just that that uh, again, Aeneas kind of wandering for. I think we we learned that he's been wandering for seven years at the end of this book, um, it, it kind of realizing that he's. He's famous. Yes. Um, and, you know, not in the way that he perhaps would like to be. You know, he's famous as a participant in this awful destructive war. Right. That ruined his city. And there's this fantastic line. It's 458. Atri das priamum 
He starts to see all of these things depicted on these panels. He sees the sons of Atreus, Atreus. He sees Priam, and he sees Achilles raging at them both. Yes, 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 yes. I, I thought it was oh, um, yeah. One of my again, my talk about you know Virgil's command of kind of, of uh, visual of visual impact. He talks about uh, Troilus. Uh, mm-hmm. Lombardo translates this on another panel. Troilus, just a boy and no match for Achilles in combat, has lost his armor and is being dragged by his stampeding horses. Fallen backward from his empty chariot, he still holds the reins while his neck and hair trail in the dust, and the plain is scored by the tip of his spear. Yeah, this, I remember as an undergrad reading this for the first time, and that visual image of kind of his spear point dragging, like mm-hmm. uh, tracing, like you know, S's in the sand. I thought that was so yep. kind of hair on the back of your neck kind yes. of, of uh, effective. Yeah, and it's a beautiful line in the Latin as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that great? It's fantastic. And I think that's that's where I, uh, another place where I think I prefer Virgil to Homer. I don't, mm. I don't think Homer gets... I mean, there are some really over-the-top descriptions that Homer gives us, you know, with the eyes falling out and rolling down the hill. Right. But there's something so you know, kind of quietly tragic and human about this particular Absolutely. description. Right. It makes Virgil very, very appealing. It does, right. And I also kind of like the way that he's painting the Greeks... Not as super villains, but they're, that's that's not absent here. No, no. Right? The, the fact that Troilus is this kid who gets killed by an uh, Achilles. There's nothing valiant about Achilles no, killing Troilus. Just cruelty. Right. Absolutely. Right. And so we get sympathy. We see this scene that uh, apparently these Carthaginians have made, and the way that they've they they have painted um, and done these murals. They're doing it in a way that's sympathetic to the Trojans. Exactly. Yeah. So we had that great Troilus episode, but if we if we back up just a little bit to where he first sees it, he stops and he cries, right? This mm. is 459. He stops and he cries and he says to Akadis, is there any place in the world, any region in all the world that's not just stuffed with our struggle, Plena yes. Laboris? He says, look, there's Priam. And then here are uh, probably the two most famous lines in book one, where he says, here there are rewards for valor, right? The sua premia laudi. Yes. And then the sunt lacrimae re retmentem mortalia tungunt. So here there are tears for human events, rerum, and mortal things, mortalia, they affect the mind. Yeah. So to me, I've always used this as emblematic of humanism, right? The good kind of humanism, Mm. not secular humanism, which means the kind that's tied to a particular moment as though your generation is the only generation that ever mattered. Yeah. But the really good kind of humanism of Terence, right? I'm a human, homo sum, I think nothing human is foreign to me. Right. So when now... Aeneas arrives in Carthage, how does he know that they're going to be well-received? It's because here they cry over human suffering. Yes. Yeah. That's a profound insight that Virgil has. It is, right. And if you think about you know, just the, you know, the backstory of Dido that we just, we just heard, how easy it would have for them to have painted their own story. Um, but in some ways, they're ex- I think Dido is expressing her own suffering by depicting the suffering of the Trojans. Dido inherently recognizes that connection uh, of human suffering from uh, between her and these people that she's never met. That's right, yeah. exactly. So if you meet someone who can weep over human misery, you know you're going to be okay because yes. they're not going to treat you, uh, they shouldn't at least, with a kind of calloused hardness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
And I have a, a funny little anecdote uh, here, uh, 464 and 465. Mm-hmm. So he spoke and he fed his soul, pasket animum, on the empty picture, pictura nani. The funny anecdote is um, I once assigned this portion for a class some 20 years ago. The, mul- the line 465, multigamains largo kumektat flumina wultam. He wet his face, umektat wultam. Waltum mm-hmm. with a large flow of tears. Yes. And my student translated this. I remember this young woman's name. I won't, I won't say it on air. Delightful young lady. She was struggling to get some of the vocab and she said, uh, in the river, he met a large vulture. <laughs> mm, good effort. Yeah. Good effort. That, good effort. And, and, uh, to be uh, truth be told, that would be terrifying. Yes, it would. You're, and, uh, you're out for a swim, and right? And there's a large vulture. <laughs> and she was she was trying to make do with. Okay, what is this waltum? Well, it's it, it maybe it looks like vulture. It's right. it's face, and you know, flumina is a river. And and I so my only question was, so one minute he's looking at the scenes on the, and the next he's in a river with a large <laughs> vulture. Being attacked by a bird. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. You know, live to fight another day. Yeah. And but I mean, all told, it's not a bad strategy. I mean, if you don't know where to go, oh. choose you know the the what's what sure. looks like a cognate, right? Yeah, and yeah. and make it coherent. Yes. you've got to come up with a complete idea. So I applaud. Absolutely. Well, Jeff, we're really uh, up against the clock this morning, yeah. aren't we? And we didn't get to the end of book one like I we know, promised. I right? know, but we make all kinds of uh, you know empty promises on this show, don't we? Exactly. Look at these empty <laughs> images that uh, that Virgil was just telling That's us right. about. Right? Feasting their souls on. But why rush, really? Right. I'm not, you know what? I'm not going to apologize no. for, for, for taking it slow and trying to in, in, in get all the, the, the juicy goodness out of this exactly. book. Exactly. Yeah, it, it would be much worse if we were just rushing through it. Yeah, there's no reason. If you want to rush through, you want to read the Spark Notes edition, yeah. go ahead. But yeah, yeah. we're going to take our time. Was that? Were you just shaming? I thought you were you shaming the audience again there? Like, Maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do I do anything else? <laughs> But next week we'll pick up we'll we'll tag the the end of book one correct and we're going to get into what I believe you said is your favorite book absolutely book two book two the fall of Troy we have Sinon and the uh, the characters within the horse we have so many in, incredible episodes in book two of Aeneas's encounter with Helen and does he kill her or does he let her go yeah it's just gripping it's great stuff we get we get uh, a kind of a um, we get a, a, a version of the fall of Troy that that Homer never gives us. No, it's the most extended and longest version in a literature yep. of the fall of Troy. Yep. But we got to get out of here. We do. So, uh, Dave, who do we got to thank? Uh, we want to thank um, me, first yeah. of all, because I have developed this fantastic program yes. for learning Greek. You were just about to ask oh, me about the, it. Oh, the Moss Method. Exactly. So yeah. the Moss Method, we're going to raise the price June 1. How have, dare you? Well, we have to respond to, you know, the... Inflationary pressures? Exactly. Okay. Inflationary pressures. We haven't raised the price in four years. It's only going up just a titch okay. from two ninety nine to three twenty five. So if you want to get in before the price goes up, yep. you better go to the website, mossmethod.com, check it out, take you from... Uh, neophyte to erudite. That's correct. And it will teach you a comprehensive, self-paced, expert, guided approach to the Greek language. Do it. All right, we also got to thank Mishka. We have to thank our wonderful sound engineer. Mishka puts this together so brilliantly. Our musicians, uh, right. Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin. That's for, correct. For the, the, the screaming licks that you hear throughout. And the bumper music there for the ads. Yeah. Anyone else we need to thank? Um, Should we thank the audience? We thank for putting up with us once yes. again. Yes, as always. Episode number 84, and some people are still listening. Still listening. We're so grateful. We're thank so you. We're so grateful for that. What if they want to contact us and help us with our lack of shout outs? All they got to do is write to either me at Jeff at Adnan. 
nauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or to Dave over there at Dave at Ad Nauseum. Again, don't forget the V. We want to hear from you. Yes, we We'd do. We'd love to shout you out, give you a little bit of a, a publicity. Yeah. If, you, if you want to plug something, plug it. Right? Yeah, plug it. That's right. A little right. 13 minutes of fame, right. something you, like that. If you're a New Zealander in the barista championships, let us know. Yeah, we want to know. We you want to you know. are the interesting ones out there exactly. who are consuming this content. Check out our gurgles. Don't forget the V. We've got two of them. More coming up on a variety of interesting topics. Indeed. So next week, we're going to pick up the uh, pick up where we left off, End yes. of the Aeneid, and into book two. Uh, uh, I can't wait. That's right. And Jeff, you have our gustatory parting shot. Yes, I'm going to apologize for the pronunciation of the author here. So, for... so you are apologizing or you're not? Just a moment ago, you were saying, I'm not apologizing well, for anything. There's some things I'll apologize for and then some things I won't. So this is something I will apologize for. Okay. Uh, mangling a, a pronunciation. All right. This comes from a book called The Book of Wisdom by one uh, Bangambiki Habia Rimana. All right. Who uh, in this book wrote, a full fridge is like an empty one. What am I going to eat? <laughs> That's a great question. It is a great question. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.